God has really blessed me. You know, he let me work in D.C., let me work with EIB and Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And he's shown me through all those experiences that there is one problem and one solution, and that's why we do this show. Welcome to A Disciple's View with Todd Herman. When the God of the universe created the world, he didn't snap his fingers or wink his eye. He spoke. God said, let there be light. I love a friend of mine, um, Jana, translated this once as light be. Love that. Because we believe, we speak about the happenings in the world, mindful that our true home is with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Welcome to Disciples View. I'm Todd Herman. Have you survived having a, a temporary speaker of the house? Is everything okay? Uh, John Adams said, and this, this used to mean something quite different to me. John Adams said, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people that is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. It's a beautiful quote. Uh, John Adams, of course, stumbled uh, in the way of following the constitution when he was in office uh, by making it a, a, a crime to criticize his excellency. John Adams leaned a little bit that way. And that used to mean something different to me now. And now I look at it and say, religious, okay. What does that mean? Because one can be religious and wrong and then moral. A moral people. Apart from God, apart from being connected to the vine, how do we have morality? Uh, John Adams was a man who believed in God and a, a man who, who was, I think, in many, many ways after God's heart. He was flawed. He was human. All of our founders were flawed and they were human. They also were founding a nation at a time uh, unique, I think, in world history to found a nation from whole cloth. But also with the hindsight of the systems that had worked and not worked, these were red men. They were studied men. And they didn't just study European forms of governance. There was the study of how the native tribes did it. This is never discussed enough. They looked at all the systems and said, what system do we seek for ourselves? We seek to be governed at our own consent. That is American exceptionalism. That we are governed by the consent of the governed. That consent... That consent is seeping away. And from my time in Washington, D.C., which was brief. Now, I worked there consistently for about um, a year and a half. No, that's not true. About a, a year and six months. And then in and out for another year and six months after that, having form, founded a company and then sold it, largely based in Washington, D.C. for that time. The company, not me. What I noticed there was... There is a complete wall between Washington, D.C. and the country. And what's happened, I think, in Congress is that wall has been broken. I, I've never met Matt Gates. I don't pretend to know his heart. I don't pretend to know his walk with the Lord. If he even has a walk with the Lord, I don't pretend to know. I'm supposed to pretend to know these things as a talk show host. I don't do that anymore. What I have seen, though, is that Matt Gates represents not an American issue. Matt Gates represents a human issue. Not knowing his walk with the Lord, I don't know how much I can talk about his soul wanting freedom. 
except for this. Our souls want freedom. Well, freedom as defined by being submissive to God. That's what our souls seek. So Matt Gates is the architect behind the ouster of the first House Speaker to be, uh, to be vacated. Not the first one to be ousted, but the first one to be vacated. And Matt Gates talked on the network where Tucker Carlson used to work about some of the things he says was going on behind the scenes with Kevin McCarthy. ...and nice about his past and his history. But when he says we're not conservative because we didn't vote to secure the border, I think that does merit a response. We passed a Department of Homeland Security border bill that would have required E-Verify with a host of other reforms. Then, on a continuing resolution, Kevin McCarthy wanted us to surrender every other fight. Jack Smith, weaponized government, everything else going on just to isolate the border thing. Now, I don't believe that the way conservatives get ahead is surrendering everything but the border in order to address the border. And I don't think that the way to address the border is to pass E-Verify and then say that the strong border position is the abandonment of E-Verify in a vote that occurs 14 hours later. And this is politics. Some people would say politics is the art of compromise. It's war by another means. I would say this. When it's so evident that the people in the White House are criminals, what good does it do to be yoked to them? E-Verify is only as good as the enforcement. And the enforcement from the Department of Homeland Security doesn't exist. It's not allowed to exist. So how then do we proceed? Well, for me, it's spiritual awareness. Everything comes down to God and what is God's word. For me, that's how it comes down. And I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what, uh, what fellowships can light have with darkness? I'm not here to say that Matt Gates is light. I'm not here to say that Kevin McCarthy is darkness. I'm not here to say that I'm seeking a, a form of Christian nationalism where we just create a Christian nation by force. That is, in my judgment, against the way Jesus ever did anything. Jesus sought to serve, not be served. What I am saying is let's not yoke ourselves emotionally to this. Let us look at this as the work of the machinations of government, which you can expect to involve great amounts of human ego. But let us also think about what it would be like if we were not yoked together with them. What would that be like? What if our time was spent raising a generation of kids and grandkids and neighbors? And if you don't have kids, you're blessed. God's blessed you with being single. What would it look like to have a revolution of the mind of the soul, of the spirit, and then of how the flesh responds? What would that look like in Washington, D.C.? When Matt Gates did this and he pulled this move, I, I, I watched and I saw people saying things like this. Well, what does this gain us? What, what, and, and people said this to me, challenging me. Todd, what does this gain us? Now we get 30 more days of Pelosi-level spending and the Democrats get what they want. And my response to this was, it gains this. Kevin McCarthy made some promises. He promised to take action on creating single-topic bills. He promised a 72-hour period to read legislation before it's voted upon. And it is an insanity that we do anything else. 
And it's an insult that the promises were not kept, that McCarthy didn't do that. Now, he's not the first person to break a promise. Washington, D.C. is built upon broken promises. The paychecks of people there revolve around broken promises. And there comes a time where you say no. God says no to us for our own good. God's no's are often ways of saving us. I had this weird realization the other day because I was talking to a brother who had great promise as a baseball player but just never developed the arm accuracy. Everything else, he had a great bat. He had a great mitt. Great running speed, but just never, never developed arm accuracy. And with such self-awareness that he's broken, with such awareness of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within him, he said, God rescued me from a career in baseball. Why would that be rescue? Because it would have moved him further away from God. I'm watching a Washington, D.C. that, in my mind, is as far away from God as one can be. Well, and the accusations tossed straight at Matt Gates were fascinating to me. He's working with Democrats. Well, wait a minute. When Kevin McCarthy works with Democrats, that's a good thing. When Matt Gates does, it's, it's treasonous. Again, I don't know Gates, but I know this. Accusing him of doing this for simple fundraising, that this is just a way to raise funds for, for Matt Gates and his reelection and his power. Okay, we could make that claim, and Matt Gates had a response. I take no lecture on asking patriotic Americans to weigh in and contribute to this fight from those who would grovel and bend knee for the lobbyists and special interests who own our leadership, who have... Oh, boo all you want, who have hollowed out this town and have borrowed against the future of our future generations. I'll be happy to fund my political operation through the work of hardworking Americans, 10 and 20 and $30 at a time. And you all keep showing up at the lobbyist fundraisers and see how that goes for you. I reserve. Why is anyone booing? Is this, is anything he says inaccurate? Entire bills which have become law, have been written by industry groups. How does one think we arrived at a place where pharmaceutical companies were allowed to pay off the CDC, to pay off the FDA, to demand that Americans get injected with uh, gene sequencing devices that are inert in terms of stopping the disease, but pretty good at being harmful and all too often deadly. How did we arrive there? This was the action of government. This was the action of people following what we were told in Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. I'm aware that Congress is not a court, but I'm also aware that it's a certain part of government and has court-like activities in terms of making law. And speaking of that, speaking of that, this is the judge who has been overseeing the trial of President Trump related to his real estate holdings. And think again of what I just quoted from Leviticus. Juries get it wrong a lot. That's my own opinion. I do only civil trials, personal injury cases, contract disputes. But I've had situations where like, oh my, my heaven's sake, how could they have thought that? Well, I have a, um, 
I have a tool that I can deal with that. It's called jury notwithstanding the verdict, judgment notwithstanding the verdict. I can say there is no possible way that a reasonable jury would have reached that conclusion. This is a judge bragging about letting his fleshly feelings overrule the analysis or maybe the fleshly feelings of people in a jury. If we go back to Leviticus, you're not to do this in court. We go back to Colossians, why are we yoked together? We can't unyoke ourselves from the judicial system. It's a reality. But we can unyoke our generations and next generations from an expectation of more from humans. For God is the only truly impartial judge. And the judge in Trump's case, Erdogan, went on to say that, hey, if I'm told I can't take a certain case because the cases are too similar, I can simply say, oh, are they? Because I see the defendant in one wore a blue sweater, the defendant in the other wore a red sweater. To paraphrase. Therefore, I can do what I wish because I'm unconstrained by truth. So when Matt Gates makes this move and Matt Gates causes this, this shakeup, um, in the world of psychology, is called a pattern interrupt. I've seen this used. I've used it myself. Someone was once screaming at a gate agent, screaming at her. And I've been angry traveling as well, screaming at this woman. And I stepped up and said, I'm, pardon me, sir. I'm sorry. Do you speak Spanish? And he said, what? I said, I just for a second, I was wondering if this is a language issue. Hi, I'm Todd. Extended my hand and tried to help. The pattern interrupt was to cause his brain to go into another area. Some, wait, did that guy just ask me if I speak Spanish? Washington, D.C. has to have a pattern interrupt. They just hired Gavin Newsom, just named a third senator from Maryland. Maryland now has three senators. Every other state has two. Yeah, the replacement for, for Diane Feinstein? Well, yeah, she's from Maryland. She's not from California. Washington, D.C. needs a pattern interrupt. Matt Gates is that pattern interrupt. Our way of thinking about where we're going to receive repentance for many of us needs a pattern interrupt. Those of us who follow the Lord Jesus know where it comes from. We need the next generation to understand it's the only place from which it comes. Next in the Disciples View, Jason Rance and what's killing America's cities. Disciples View, I'm Todd Herman. Reconnected with a a friend and former colleague uh, this week on my podcast. Uh, You can get my podcast, incidentally. Go to thetoddhermanshow.com. And I do two and a half hours of material every weekday. And we go pretty deep on topics. In this case, we talked about the what I consider to be the purposeful destruction of America's cities. Because I think they are being purposely destroyed. And my friend Jason Rance, used to work with him in radio. Uh, Jason joined me, has a new book. You've seen Jason on Fox News. He's omnipresent there. He's a very hardworking guy. He and I disagree on a bunch. 
we disagree on faith. We disagree on, on, um, on issues of sexuality. And on the topic of cities, Jason gets it. And he's one of the most diligent and careful reporters and a very, very good writer, very skilled writer. And his new book is What's Killing America's Cities? And he warns people about what's going on, but also, importantly, gives people ways to stop it and identify if it's coming to their city. The book is split into techniques the left uses, policies, and how to fight these. Uh, So I asked Jason to talk about the crime and drug numbers in what I call the separate country of Seattle. And this is the picture that Jason painted. Yeah. And in fact, I'll do it this way. Rather than get lost in some of the specific numbers, which I break down to your point in the book, put it this way. We have seen historic rises in pretty much every category of crime. We have seen historic rises when it comes to overdose deaths. And we've seen it happen all around the exact same time, which usually should be seen as a hint to some folks that maybe it's tied to something we're doing differently. And so when you see a rise in, say, homicides or a rise in cars being driven into storefronts and then thieves getting out and stealing, when you see an over 10,000% increase in catalytic converter theft just in Washington state alone, you can probably realize it's connected to something. And it's connected to radical left-wing policy decisions that have been made. I I credit the radical left in one regard. During all of this, they were open about what it is they were hoping to accomplish. They tell us that they want to dismantle systems of oppression, and they believe that every single institution that's an American governmental institution is one that is oppressive. And so they said from the beginning, we're going to just break it down and then build it back up. And they built it through a very specific left-wing extremist lens. And in some ways, in some cases, they passed legislation. I focus a little bit on Washington just because it's so outrageous what they've done. For example, banning vehicular pursuits. So a police officer, upon seeing someone in a nonviolent crime, you can't pursue. Well, guess what it did? It encouraged people to continue to commit crimes and they, of course, escalate. You see some cases all around the country and adoption of a strategy, not a bill, but a strategy called harm reduction, which is about mitigating the risks associated with illicit substance use. And rather than push treatment, they're pushing literally, here's a needle, here is a crack pipe, here's what all the tools you need in order to continue to get high. And I could ask any random person, I know you too, you can as well, if they can define harm reduction, if they've even heard of that before. And 10 out of 10 will tell you no. And yet that's a policy that's implemented in every single Democrat-run city, county, and state. And it has been adopted at the federal level. And Jason's book explains this, harm reduction. So in the book is called What's Killing America's Cities. If you hear harm reduction in your city, understand it's the opposite. 30 years ago, they started taking, um, they started a needle exchange program in Seattle. And you brought one needle that was dirty and they would give you a clean needle, and it was supposedly to, to stop people from spreading diseases. Where this has gotten now in Seattle, and in Portland, and Los Angeles, and New York, is they'll just hand you 300 needles. But in, the, in, in Seattle, drinking straws are illegal. It is illegal for a restaurant to give you a drinking straw. Now, I want to be very careful with this. It's, it's, he, he uses very clinical language, <laughs> uh, colloquial language, But it's so important to understand how obsessed 
leftist governments are in making sure people continue to take drugs. So I asked Jason to very, very carefully explain what a booty bumping kit is. I I will. And I got to explain this on Tucker Carlson to 3 million people. So you can imagine the emails I got after that. Yeah. Uh, But a booty bumping kit is essentially you have a, um, a syringe, you remove the needle inside, you put water and you, it's usually meth that is mixed between it. And then you inject it through the back end of your body. And apparently going through uh, the colon is a quicker way to get high. It's a deeper high, apparently. And, you know, this is these are kits that are being distributed using taxpayer dollars. And I would argue that's probably not going to get someone to to stop uh, their addiction. We're not actually treating anything. They have no interest in stopping addiction. They have interest in propelling it and creating more of it. And this is just a fact, given the consistent behavior of what these people do. When I talk about the purposeful destruction of cities, these are some of the examples I made. Now, I did ask Jason uh, Rance, who joined me on my podcast, and you can hear the whole interview there at the ToddHermanShow.com. You can also buy Jason's book, not, not there, but at Amazon or Walmart. I asked Jason two things. First, is there any pushback on the left coast? And if there is any chance for change at the ballot box? I, so half of that is, is a yes, in that I think that there are more people who are noticing what's happening but they're noticing because they're now personally experiencing some of the issues, the consequences. And unfortunately, I, I believe there's a large number of folks who have to personally experience something before they come around. Now, generally, they're not going to, thank God, experience like a violent crime, but they mm-hmm. probably will experience a break into their car or to their home. They certainly will experience all the homelessness popping up around soon their neighborhood. And that's when they start to, to shift their thinking. I, I don't know, however, if that's going to be enough to get them to vote for a It's certainly not going to be for a Republican, but for a moderate Democrat, should one decide to run. And that's, you know, depending on where it is you live, that's the best that we're going to get. I would love to have a moderate Democrat. In fact, the one in Seattle on the Seattle City Council Sarah Nelson, who is very much a moderate, I think she's doing a very good job and she's the perfect kind of, of council member because she just isn't ideologically inclined either way, maybe means to the left, but that's about it. You're, you're seeing in San Francisco, clearly there was pushback. They ended up going after Chester Boudin, their prosecutor, who's a George Soros wannabe. They ended up recalling three school board directors, which I cover both of those instances in my book. And that's kudos to them. Those were not conservatives who were doing it. It was progressives who were pushing back and said, yeah, we have a limit to what we're going to put up with. So there has been changes and people have become aware of what's going on. And Jason writes about this to some degree in his book. What's so vital is that people must understand how real this is. And from time to time, people will go and they'll visit Seattle and they'll come back and, and say, oh, wait, I had no idea. And Jason made that point that, that, you know, people sometimes experience things. This just happened to me. I just had a very dear friend, and he's a godly man, great father, smart man. And he, he came back from Seattle. They went to go see a, a football game. And he came and he shared with me. He said, Todd, I saw people zombified. He goes, literally, 
leaning over at the waist, their arms wagging around, completely unaware of where they're at, people injecting themselves in their eyeballs, a guy in the, putting a needle in his tongue. And I told him, brother, I've been telling you this. I mean, you listen to my podcast. You listen to my radio shows. I've been telling you this, but to see it, to see the least of these. And I heard a song the other day, a Christian song reminded me that we're all the least of these. So I asked Jason Rance in his book, um, What's Killing America's Cities. I asked him how people can identify an impending leftist takeover in their city. Yeah, well, first it starts with just identifying the language of the left when they talk about anytime they tell you that their approach, whatever they're calling it, is compassionate, that should be a red flag. It's not compassionate. That usually means that they're going to justify a behavior that is dangerous for themselves, for the individual, or for the community. But when they start talking about housing first, I'm glad you brought up Salt Lake City, which I I hate to break it to you. I think it's already pretty blue. (laughs) I think that that probably shifted a a couple years ago, specifically Salt Lake. I actually have an entire chapter of my book is focused on Salt Lake City because they introduced housing first as a city years ago, and they were the first ones to do it. And then after just about, I think it was three or four years, they ended up coming out and saying that they got to functional zero homelessness because of the housing first model. And the housing first means, just like it says, you're first putting someone into a quote unquote house. It's usually an apartment or nowadays a homeless hotel without any preconditions. So if you're a user, you can continue to use while in this environment. Now, when they said that they got to functional zero, they were comparing the, they were comparing chronic homelessness towards uh, just homelessness in general, which gave them way better numbers than it actually existed. And every year since they claimed that they figured it out, homelessness has gotten worse. More and more and more homeless people, the, the shelters there have been overrun. Crime specifically due to homelessness has gotten out of control. And yet progressives will still say we're doing housing first because it was such a huge success in Salt Lake. And just for the the book, just doing the research on how it was covered at the time. You know, I remember I remember seeing the clip of the Daily Show going down there and, and doing interviews there about how this was, oh, it turns out the best way to stop someone from being homeless is to give them a home. Who knew? And they were having the fun with it. L.A. Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Washington Post all just celebrating this and like, yeah, the data is in, it's clear and we can move on. This is how you solve homelessness. No, and no follow-up, by the way, just blindly continuing to follow. I just said to talk to Jason Rantz, friend, uh, former colleague, guy really instrumental in getting me my start back in radio about his book, What's Killing America's Cities. You've seen Jason on Fox News. He's there all the time. One of the hardest working people in media. And I wrapped up the interview um, asking Jason about the number one thing people need to know to understand that this this problem is vitally real, that this is, in fact, reality for far too many people. All people have to do right now is look at the data on crime, look at the data particularly around teen violence. The data is what it is because we have adopted these policies in a very significant way. When they decided on the radical left to not just do restorative justice, but also with DAs that have been installed because of, in this case, very clearly money from George Soros helped to put these people into office to convince the public that uh, they were compassionate uh, based on their positions. But when they decided to stop charging certain kinds of crime or automatically plead down, when they did that in a big way is when we started to see 
this rise in crime. And I know that they want to pretend that it was somehow due to COVID. Um, I was also bored during COVID. I did not shoot anyone. I did not commit a drive-by shooting. Uh, so this idea that you know that was the reason behind some of the data, it's just, it's absurd. Yeah. And especially because it's not stopped. We still have it. DC just in, in this month, or depending on when you're listening, at the end of September, they got past 200 homicides. That was the number they achieved last year at the end of the year. So we're going into the oh, first God. week of October, and, and we've already exceeded that record. You look at Seattle, we're, about, we're on pace right now to have the highest recording of homicides in the city's history. These are areas that adopted the far-left views. Now, in some other cases, there have been uh, cities that have adopted it, and finally we're starting to see some of the numbers come down. I would caution people against folks who quote stats when they say, for example, uh, the, the numbers in 2023, uh, the homicides are down 12% year over year in Philly or whatever the number would be. Understand they're comparing that to a record high. Don't compare it to the last two years. Compare it to what it was like in 2019 and 2018, 2017. Those are the times where we had some semblance of sanity in a lot of these cities. You can also look at some of the data, and this is actually kind of fascinating, because you'll see when, when homicides are sometimes down, and they're trying to make that case right now in county, they say, see, homicides are down, what we're doing is working. Yeah, but gunshots are up. People getting shot and just not dying are up. You're just dealing with criminals oh, who are either a bad shot or someone's getting oh, lucky, no. right? So this idea that, oh, see, the numbers are down on homicides. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. They, they'll do everything they can. Uh, that was Jason Rant's new book is What's Killing America's Cities. The, the people who are pushing this down on people, uh, the politicians, will do anything they can to hide the results of it. And those, there are people, and Jason and I talked about this, there are people who absolutely know. And they're at the top. People like, in my judgment, the Attorney General of Washington State, Bob Ferguson, in my judgment, absolutely knows that he's participating in destroying that state to, to participate in the cultural revolution because he intends to come out on top. Uh, I contend that Gavin Newsom knows exactly what he's doing. Gavin Newsom is far from stupid. He knows, he knows the playbook. These guys know the Maoist playbook. They understand what they're doing. They'll hide this in every single way possible. My advice on this is judge every spirit. And Jason and I disagree on faith, which saddens me. Judge every spirit. You go to a city council meeting. Are you seeing people in the fruit of the spirit? Are you seeing people in, in the throes of fleshly desires? Are they truthful people? Jason talked about the ways they hide this stuff with statistics. Seattle will tell you crime is down. They'll say vandalism is down. They'll say street crimes are down. Want to know why? Because they're not illegal anymore. It's no longer illegal to vandalize a building. Trespassing is down. Sure it is, because it's no longer illegal. You legalize trespassing. I'm not joking when I tell you that in Seattle, a person can walk into your backyard and put up a pup tent, start baking meth and live in there, and you're going to take three or four months maybe to get them out of your yard, unless you physically remove them, and most of those people are armed with guns and knives. This is The Disciples' View. I'm Todd Herman. We'll come back with our feature called The Tower of Babbling.
to Disciples View. I'm Todd Herman. Appreciate you uh, joining and, and joining us next week for Share Week. Really excited about that because it'd be an opportunity for me to do it for the first time. I've never done anything like this. I've done fundraisers, uh, but I've always been just a keynote speaker or a, a speaker at events. I've, I've never actually done fundraising and for something that I care so much about. I care so much about freedom of speech. And the freedom to spread God's word, uh, I can't, I'll tell you something that I've not shared with people, and then we'll get to the Tower of Babylon as promised. Um, when I was in commercial radio, and I still am, uh, I mean, this, this, this is listener supported, but my podcast is very definitely you know, commercial uh, with, with corporate support. But I found it difficult to not speak God's word. And I'd heard pastors explain this to me, that this is going to happen to you. And I was kind of excited, well, maybe that will happen. And I'm not saying, and I want to be very clear, when I had the radio show in Seattle, I was never told, don't speak God's word. In fact, they they were fine with it. They were fine, but it couldn't become a sermon. And I'm not qualified to give sermons, which is good news. Uh, So that was good news. But it it became difficult for me to not involve God's word at the center of this. And there's been instances on the show, maybe I shared this with you. I don't know if I ever disclosed this to you. But there's been a couple of times in this program where we've come in with a show planned. And I don't write out what I'm going to say, but we have what's called a show sheet. And that show sheet is, hey, these are the sound clips that Randy or this week Adam's going to play. Randy's on vacation with his beautiful wife, Joy. And, and it's, it's an outline. And I began to speak the outline, and God said, no. I'm, I'm not going to let you do it. You're going instead to go in this direction. And the, the first time that happened on AFR, and afterwards, Randy, who is usually running things behind the scenes, Randy came on and said, Todd, can I please keep a copy of that show and, and, and use it, you know, if, if you're sick or can we use it as a best of? And man, f- forget your outline. Do that again. And I hope that doesn't sound prideful because I had nothing to do with that statement. Or probably that show. I had nothing. I sat down after praying, after receiving the word. I sat down and nothing else mattered. It was this. It was God saying, you're going to challenge yourself this way. That can only really happen. I could only really let that instinct go that far because it was a 40, what, we're an hour show? It was an hour about learning to love my enemy. It was an hour about how God just thrust into my heart. This sadness for a soul named Joe Biden just planted it in there. You're going to stop seeing the corrupt flesh that is wrapped around this soul called Joe Biden. And you're going to remember that trapped in that body is a soul. And that soul is in eternal danger of being separated from God forever. And you are going to feel this this day. And you're going to challenge the audience and and challenge people to say, do we really have the capability to pray for our enemies? And if not, we're not fully in Christ. If we can't pray for enemies, we are not fully in Christ. And I'll probably come back to that thought, but uh, that's just related to Share Week next week. Only this network can do something like that. So I hope that you will embrace 
um, share week with, with that in mind. On a disciples' view, we like to spend some time celebrating what God does in the way only God can do, which is everything. And I'm one who believes that God has a sense of humor. I know that's his cliche, but he invented laughter. <laughs> Would the inventor of laughter not also have the uh, world's best sense of humor? Uh, we base this on the fact of the Tower of Babbling as depicted in the Bible, where the, the people said, hey, we don't want to disperse, God. You told us to disperse, Lord, but we're, we're, we have better plans. And so we're going to park ourselves right here. And having parked ourselves, we're going to build a massive tower unto our own wisdom. And then God came along, and I think sense of humor-like said, oh, are you? <laughs> Why don't you try that without language and see how that goes? And with this feature, we thank the Lord for placing the supposedly wise on tall towers of shaking sand with our feature called the Tower of Babel. You know about the biblical truth of the Tower of Babel. A Disciple's View presents... Who doesn't love a yellow school bus? Trans women are women, trans men are men, and non-binary people are non-binary. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. The Tower of Babbling. In... December, way back in 2021, Kathy Hochul, the um, dictator of New York, who suddenly, you know, she suddenly longer has dictatorial powers. <laughs> they had dictatorial powers to force people to get injected and, and to stay home and to close schools. And I'll never forget. And I think this was more of a mayor of New York thing, but I'll never forget the image of New York police officers being paid money to, to get up on, um, what were they standing, on boxes, and to spy uh, in synagogues to see if people were wearing masks or gathering. Do you remember the chaining down uh, of, the, of the Jewish playgrounds? Do you remember this? Playgrounds for the Jewish schools? I'll never forget that vision. It was so haunting. Suddenly, they don't have dictatorial powers. Kathy Hochul, back in December 2021, had, had welcomed illegal immigrants to come to New York. And she, she gave them welcome messages and did things from the Statue of Liberty. Well, that's interesting because times have changed. As you know, the Statue of Liberty is inscribed. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled young masses yearning to be free, the wretched refuse to a teeming shore. And that statement encapsulizes our values we want people to come here, despite where they came from or despite the circumstances that drove them to this country and to this, mm. and to this state. We see, say you are welcome here. We are welcome with open arms and we'll work to keep you safe. We'll not only house you, but we'll protect you. We have to let the word out that when you come to New York, we're not going to have more hotel rooms. <laughs> we don't have capacity. So we have to also message properly that we're at our limit. If you're going to leave your country, go somewhere else. Okay. What changed? People took her at her word. She was lying then, or she's lying now, or she didn't fully understand what was going on in the border of Texas, which is, I guess, to be fair, a possibility. But before she spoke out and said, all illegal immigrants are welcome here, couldn't she have made a trip to the border? So now she wins a spot in one of the three stories in the Tower of Babbling. This is a tragic and fully accurate look at a group of people that I have labeled smugrels. It's part smug, part liberal, a smugrel. 
And Smugrel is a class of elites, and they exist on the conservative side as well. They're a class of an elite who are uniquely unaffected by the policies they force down upon others. And consequently, easily easily able to ignore them. A classic example is out of Seattle where you had, um, until they moved, (laughs) they built these incredible buildings and then they moved and no longer work there. You'll have tech people who leave their homes in an Uber, get dropped off at work where there is a gym, there are multiple restaurants within their work space. They never have to leave. And then they get in an Uber and they go home. And they vote for more taxes and they vote for depolicing because, of course, that's what's right. They never are affected by that which is around them and their policies. In March of this year, a D.C. city councilman, Phil Mendelson, talked about crime in Washington, D.C. And incidentally, one need not ask if a councilman in D.C. is a Democrat one knows that is a given. I know this belies the common belief, and when it comes to crime, how people feel is important. But there is not a crime crisis in Washington, D.C. There is, and this past week, just this week, there was a congressman who was carjacked at gunpoint. It shouldn't bother us more that the person was a congressman. It should bother us that it happens with regularity in Washington, D.C. And I'm here to tell you that there's been a crime problem in Washington, D.C. since I was there, and that has been 10 years ago, more, more than 10 years ago, since I lived there. I was once jogging through a neighborhood, just jogging back to work at the Republican National Committee. I heard someone yelling my name. I had my music in. I took out my headphones. I turned around, and there was the security guard who worked at the Republican National Committee yelling my name. Get in here. Get in here. Dwayne happened to be a black man. So I ran up. I said, hey, what's going on? He goes, Todd, what are you doing? I said, Dwayne, I'm, I'm jogging to work. You're going to get killed. You're going to get kidnapped and tortured and, and, and robbed and tortured and killed. Get in here. And his wife made me eat breakfast. She was kind enough to force me to eat. And I told Dwayne, look, you're not, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have you drive me to work. Uh, I'll go back. He said, you promised me you never jog in this neighborhood again. I said, but you live here. He goes, and I'm black. And I like it. But this is where I live. It's been that way for years. Last story in our Tower of Babbling today features someone who will make a consistent appearance. This is Jean-Pierre. Well, that's what I call her. I actually call her the spokeslier for the figurehead. There is strong, very strong international coalition behind Ukraine. And if Putin thinks he can outlast us, he's wrong. He's wrong. And so we will have another package of aid for Ukraine soon to signal our continued support for the brave people of Ukraine. And so that's our message. If he thinks he can outlast us, that is Mr. Putin, we believe he's wrong. Okay, so the babbling part. The babbling part is, this is at a time of a government shutdown. We were told it's so consequential it could end life itself in the United States. This is coming at a time where she's talking about the national sovereignty of Ukraine at a time where it will soon be that we have more illegal immigrants who've come into this country than the population of two states. There is no care for national sovereignty. There's no care for borders. For whatever reason, there's obsession with Ukraine. And now we're back where we began. The show today, Matt Gates vacating the speaker's chair. 
we're back to the discussion we just had about AFR and about speaking truth. There's a crazy thing that happens when you speak truth in a community that's not used to hearing it. You will see how the community has come to build for themselves their own gods because we are hardwired to want to have God. We talk in the evangelical circles about the, heart, the, the God-shaped hole that exists in us. I'm reading The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis talks about, he wanted to write a book that would, that would criticize what he calls need love. People who love because they need to be loved. He intended to criticize that until he realized that, no, that's our pathway back to God. The love we need is the gift love that God gives. The reason I mention these things all together is this. Speaking truth into a society that can no longer see it is some of the things that Matt Gates has done. Again, I don't know his soul, nor anything like it. I don't know him. But we are a debtor nation. We are functionally bankrupt. We are. Mathematically, that debt will never be paid back. But if you say that, if you speak that in Congress, this debt will never be repaid. It's as if you've been found naked. Found naked. Adam and Eve were found naked. Well, God always knew they were naked. Adam and Eve just learned it. Washington, D.C. is learning they're naked. And there's no place to hide what they've done with their fleshly desires. When that truth hits them, and it's beginning to, they're beginning to understand the worldwide populist movement. Populism can be brutally dangerous. The French Revolution was populism. I regard myself as a Christian conservative, constitutional populist, the populist part, because it's the only way anything's going to get done right now. But they have to come together with everything else I just described. Or we could be like France, but that could never happen here. Well, neither could injection diktats or shutting down entire segments of society for pharmaceutical companies. The pattern interrupt, if you want to say on a secular basis, that Matt Gates and this team have provided, it's valuable. It pales in comparison to the pattern interrupt of understanding this will be the human way until Jesus returns. Broken institutions of broken people serving their own fleshly desires because only in God can we ever have anything different. In the beginning was the word And the word was with God and the word was God. Because we believe, we speak. Because he first loved us, we speak his word. This is the disciple's view. I'm Todd Herman. And may God Almighty be with you and yours. And Jesus Christ continue to smile upon you.